I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Do you want to be king or do you want to be in the kingdom? Do you want to be independent, be your own authority, the final word on what's right and true, or completely dependent upon God for those answers? Do you want to be free to do as you please, what you please, when you please, where you please, or do you want the freedom only God can give, a freedom that that comes at the price of those things? A freedom that comes as a result of renouncing the pursuit of doing as you please, what you please, when you please, where you please. Those are your two options. The only two you have. There are ultimately two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. A heavenly and glorious kingdom and an earthly and hellish one. You cannot belong to both and you cannot not belong to one. If you do not belong to God's kingdom, you belong to the other. And where you belong matters immensely. It matters for eternity. The result will either be heaven or hell, life or death, salvation or condemnation. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9. We have learned in our study through this book that God the Son has come in the person of Jesus from the right hand of the Father He has become one of us in order to rescue us from this evil kingdom we are enslaved to. He has come to rescue us from the kingdom of self. He has come to destroy the works of the little g God of this world, the devil, 2 Corinthians 4.4, who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Christ has, has come to rescue the lost from serving Satan's kingdom by living for self. At the fall, Satan tempted man to believe that there was a kingdom better than God's. He tempted man into believing that if he would pursue his own joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and hope and love apart from God, he would find more than what God could give. And man believed that lie. Chose to go against God. And as a result, ruined humanity. And we have all continued down this path. We repeat the sin of Adam day after day. This is why I began the sermon by asking you this important question. Do you want to be the king or do you want to be in the kingdom? You want to be God, do it your way, or live under his rule for his glory? You cannot do both. That's what Christ came to make known. That's what he sent his disciples out to proclaim. Look at Luke chapter 9. This morning we're going to be studying verses 1 through 9. We've had a long break from our study in Luke. We're picking right back up where we left off last time we were in Luke up to this point. 
We have been focusing primarily on the ministry of Jesus in the old northern kingdom in Galilee. To this point, the focus has been primarily on Jesus' person and work, on, on his teaching and miracles and what they tell us of who he is and the work he is sent to accomplish. While the disciples have been, been with them for some time, they have witnessed firsthand his authoritative words and his mighty works. Up to this point in Luke's account, they have been doing more observing than they have participating. That changes in Luke chapter 9. In, in Luke 9, Jesus sends his disciples out throughout Galilee to do the work that they have witnessed him do. And while we are going to study in detail the details of their ministry, I want you to see that there are deeper lessons to learn about God and his kingdom as we study the call of Christ's disciples Christ's instruction to his disciples, the positive response of his disciples, and the negative response to Christ's message and ministry. Notice first the call of Christ's disciples. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. As we consider the call of the disciples, I want to focus on two things. I want to focus on who is calling the disciples and what he is calling them to do and what kingdom principles we learn from these two things. Notice first who is calling them. We learn in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus is calling his disciples. Notice the words, he called, he gave, he sent. Jesus does the calling, Jesus does the giving, and Jesus does the sending. In the Old Testament, these words are used of God. In the Old Testament, it is God who calls, it is God who sends, it is God who gives power and authority. It is God who creates man and woman and gives them authority and power over creation. It is God who called Abram out of a pagan land and made him into a great nation. It is God who called his people out of Egyptian bondage. It is God who commissioned Moses and gave him power to deliver them. It is God who chose David to rule. It is God who sent prophets to warn his people. It is God who used great nations as his instruments of judgment and it is God who appoints saviors to deliver his people. In the New Testament, it is Jesus who calls. It is Jesus who commissions. It is Jesus who gives authority and power. Why is this significant? Because of what it communicates about Jesus. You have to have authority to give authority. You must have the authority to call and to give and to send. What kind of authority does Jesus have? Divine authority. All authority. He is, he is God, God the Son, God incarnate. He is the king of God's kingdom. As I asked at the beginning, do, do you want to be king or be in the kingdom? Those are our choices. And because Christ is the king of the kingdom to be a part of his kingdom, we must forsake our kingdom and bow before him as our great king of kings. In your study guides this week, 
You have a very important truth for the week. Christ is the king of God's kingdom. To be a part of his kingdom, you must forsake self-rule and surrender to Christ's rule. Very, very important. If you're here this morning and are not trusting in the king of God's kingdom, Christ alone for your salvation, I invite you to do that today. Forsake the tiny, insignificant kingdom of self. Forsake that lie that that kingdom is better. Forsake your independence, your authority, your self-reliance. Forsake living life for yourself apart from God. Forsake living and doing as you please, when you please, where you please, and bow the knee to King Jesus today. Give your life to Him. Surrender to His Lordship. That was the, the message Christ sent His disciples to preach, by the way. That was the work he sent them to accomplish. Let's look a bit more closely at what he called them to do. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 once again. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So notice he gave them the power to do the work they had witnessed him do. He gave them his authority over demons and disease and sent them to proclaim this message of his kingdom. They were sent out to replicate the ministry of Jesus. They they were sent out to, to proclaim that while mankind has been ruined and wrecked by sin, God in his mercy and grace has not left man to his own self destruction, but has himself come in the flesh to rescue us from the dominion of darkness, from the kingdom of Satan. He has come to rescue us from ourselves, to rescue us from the kingdom of self, and restore us to the kingdom of God. Christ has come to accomplish salvation for us and to welcome us in by his grace to this everlasting kingdom of life and joy and light and hope and happiness. And again, how do we enter in to this kingdom? How are we restored? How do we become God's kingdom people? Well, God must first do this work in us. He must change us from the inside out. We need him to work in us and we must then respond to that inward work that he must do in us by giving our lives up and over to him. We must give up the reins of our life. We must bow the knee to him, to Christ as our king. That's the message of the kingdom of God. That's the the, the gospel message that Jesus' disciples were sent to proclaim. Notice... They were not only commissioned to preach this message we see in this text, but they were given power to showcase the authority of the message and illustrate this awesome work by casting out demons and healing the sick. Through these miraculous works, the disciples show that Jesus has come to heal the spiritually sick and free those in bondage to sin. That's what these miracles show. We've been looking at that all throughout our study of Luke. They were to encounter those considered by their Jewish brothers to be ceremonially unclean and unfit, unapproachable, and they were to go to them and show them that when an unclean sinner encounters the completely clean Savior, that That unclean sinner is made completely 
clean. That's the work Christ called for them to accomplish. Notice after calling, after commissioning his disciples, he instructs them. That's point number two. Notice the instruction to Christ's disciples. Look at verse 3 through 5. Verses 3 through 5 of Luke 9. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, while we're, we're only told specifically that the act in verse 5 carries with it a deeper spiritual meaning, I believe each of the things they're called to do here carry with it a deeper lesson. Are there other reasons for them to take nothing, ask for nothing, make do, perhaps? But I suspect that they are called to do what, what, what they're called to do here because of how it supports and illustrates the message they are sent out to give. Let me explain. Let's take a look at each of these. First, they're told to take nothing for their journey, no staff, nor bag, nor money. These items represent physical nourishment, monetary provisions, and personal protection. A staff was often used to help making walking longer distances easier, but it was also used as a weapon of defense. Travelers often faced danger on the road. Robbers could attack also wild animals. So, so a staff was used for, for that reason. The word translated bag is the Greek word para. It was an open sack that one carried on their hip by a strap around the shoulder and it was often used by peasants and beggars. Money and food that was gathered through begging was placed in that bag. So Jesus says leave your staff Leave that weapon of protection. Don't bring your beggar's bag. Don't even bring bread or money. Now, some argue that was because it was a short trip that he was, he was calling them to make so those items weren't needed. Some believe that. But, but we have hints that that, that that is not the case when we look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing. Where? Everywhere. Right? Were there certain places close by? Yeah. But other places much further away. They didn't just minister close by. They went all over everywhere. So I, I don't think Jesus instructs them to take nothing because they're making a quick trip. Some argue they were not to bring their beggar's sack to avoid being a burden on those they were ministering to, like Paul did at times, to not create unnecessary barriers for the gospel. Here's the issue with that explanation. If Jesus did not want them to be a burden on those they're ministering to, he probably would have told them to bring their own food and money, and an extra tunic. He didn't. Why? I believe it was to demonstrate to those they ministered to that Christ is all they needed. The message they were sent to share is that God is all satisfying, that life in His kingdom brings lasting joy, a joy that nothing in this world can give. To come to these places with all these needs and concerns might frustrate that message. 
Ligon Duncan, when commenting on this passage of Scripture, says this. Look at this quote on the screen. If your message is God is all satisfying and that he gives a kingdom that gives the only satisfaction that there is and it is a satisfaction which surpasses anything this world can give and you're caught up in getting things from the people of this age, you contradict your message. Too often we look at this world and say, I so want what the world gives. And when we do, we show our hearts have not been captured by God's kingdom that will not end. Jesus says to his disciples, don't take anything to show that everything in this passing age will soon pass away. Jesus wanted his disciples' message to be like that song, All That Thrills My Soul Is Jesus. You remember that song? Who can cheer the heart like Jesus? By his presence, all divine. True and tender, pure and precious. Oh, how blessed to call him mine. Love of Christ so freely given. Grace of God beyond degree. Mercy higher than the heavens, deeper than the deepest sea. Every need, his hand supplying. Every good in him I see. On his strength, divine relying. He is all in all to me. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. And the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord I see. Believers, are you ministering in this way in your home, in your community, in the workplace? Or are you consumed with worldly treasures and comforts? Do you flip out when those things are threatened? Here's a good question for you. What would your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, your co-workers say is more to life to you? Are you ministering in those contexts in a way that communicates that God is all satisfying? That life in his kingdom is what truly brings lasting joy. A joy that nothing in this world can give. Can people look at you and say all that thrills your soul is Jesus? We hear that he is more to life than anything all the time, don't we? Yet we fall back into the trap again and again of being mastered by the cares and the desires and the treasures of this world. And when we do, we give in to the enemy's lie and we communicate to others as well that there is a kingdom better than God's. May God give us the grace that we need to show in our words and our actions this great truth that Christ is all we need. That's what Christ wanted communicated from his disciples. Notice he also tells them, and whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. Jesus did not want covetousness to frustrate their message. He did not want them looking for better housing if and when it became available. He wanted their focus on his mission and not on their accommodations. That's a great word for Christian ministers 
who can be tempted at times to think that the grass is greener elsewhere and look at what other pastors have and want better accommodations and they, they lose sight of the mission that God's called them to. Notice Christ also prepares his disciples for rejection. He assures them that his gospel message will not be received by all. Christ was rejected when bringing this message. They will be as well. And so will you if you are faithful to share this message. People will avoid you. They will combat you. They will speak ill of you. Jesus was not exempt from this. Neither will his disciples. Neither will any of his faithful laborers. And the reason why is because the kingdom of self is an attractive kingdom. It is. Most that we encounter on a day-to-day basis are servants of that kingdom. And they will avoid you. They will reject you. They will combat you if you threaten that kingdom. Which is tragic Because that kingdom leads to ruin. It leads to separation from God. And it leads to judgment. That's what the disciples were told to show them when they experienced rejection. They were told to illustrate that by their actions. Look at what Jesus tells them to do. Look at verse 5. And wherever they do not receive you, When you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus did not want his disciples to to fear or feel dejected when their message was refused. The one who truly suffers the greater loss are the ones who reject him and reject his gospel. If you're here and up to this point in your life, you have refused this message. You have remained a servant of your own personal kingdom. You have not forsaken the kingdom of of self. You have not forsaken your sin and going at life on your own. You've not bowed the knee to King Jesus. I invite you to this morning, at this moment, turn from your sin Surrender your life to Christ's lordship because rejection of him means separation from him and judgment. James said it very, very clearly in James chapter 4, verse 4. He said, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, those who serve the kingdom of this world by serving the kingdom of self... He says, makes himself an enemy of God. We have examined the call of Christ's disciples, Christ's instruction to his disciples. Notice next, quick point here, the positive response of his disciples. Look at verse 6 again. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. What Jesus said, they did. We're told they went all over everywhere preaching the gospel and healing the people. And while we're not told the response to their message, we we know that there will be some rejection, right? Christ told them that. We don't have the the number of positive responses. It doesn't say they had a thousand decisions in one day. There's not a report given from them, right, On, on the response. But that should not concern you or me. The results are in God's hands. He's the one that does the work. 
in the heart. He is the one that brings the increase. We are simply called to be faithful. We learn a very simple, basic lesson here about God's kingdom people. God's kingdom people are to be faithful to the Lord by obeying his word and then they leave the results to him. That's what we're called to do. Be faithful to this calling that the Lord has placed on our life. Obeying his word and then leave the results to him. I believe it was James Dobson who said, God does not call for us to be successful. He calls for us to be faithful. That's what we're called to do. That's what his disciples were faithful in doing here. Notice, last point, the negative response to Christ's message and ministry. Look at verses 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. News of the ministry of Jesus and, the, the, and or the ministry of the disciples had no doubt reached Herod the Tetrarch. When inquiring about who this man is, Herod received conflicting reports. And remember this because we're going to see this reported again and again in chapter 9 of Luke. But some said it was John. Some said John the Baptist had risen from the dead. We talked earlier in this study of Luke how the ministries of of John and Jesus, how they complemented one another, their similarities, how they fit together. Others said Elijah had appeared. I read that many in this day, many Jews believed that because Elijah had ascended to heaven without dying, many believed he would also return to rescue those suffering from great trouble, which is the work Jesus seems to be doing in their eyes. So, so they thought it was Elijah. And to support this, they used Malachi 4.5 that says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Others said... One of the prophets of old had risen. Many referred to Jesus as a prophet like Elijah because of his knowledge of the scriptures and his message of this great future work of redemption that God was going to do and because of the miracles that he performed. We we gather here that that Herod's really not buying all of that. He says, "I, I know it's not John. I beheaded John the Baptist. He knew there was no coming back from that. But Jesus's ministry had made an impression on him because he asked, Who is this about whom I hear such things? Now you're going to see this question asked in a variety of ways throughout Luke 9. Luke 9, the emphasis of that long chapter, we're going to be in it for several weeks, is the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? This question is going to be asked and answered in a variety of ways. And here we have Herod asking this question. He wanted to know more about Jesus. We're not told why, but there are two reasons often given. Some say it was because he wanted to get rid of him. He probably wanted to kill him like his father wanted to when Jesus was an infant. Being told that 
Jesus was the second coming of John the Baptist might have troubled Herod because he had John the Baptist locked up for speaking negatively about him and his immoral relationship with his brother's wife Herodias. And he also had John put to death because of a foolish oath that Herod made to Herodias' daughter who said when prompted by her mother, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. You'll read more about that account this week in your scripture reading. Herod was opposed to John because John questioned him. The Herods were known for their, the opposition of Christ and his followers because they were a threat to earthly rule. Herod the Great, Herod's father, was opposed to Jesus because people were going to worship him as the king of the Jews. So that might have concerned this Herod. Herod the Tetrarch, his rule was already less than his father's. He shared the kingdom with two other brothers. The kingdom was divided at this time. In Mark and Matthew's gospel, they refer to Herod as king. Luke is more specific, labeling him Tetrarch, for the kingdom was divided at this time. He was ruler over the area of Galilee. He certainly did not want any more threats to his earthly kingdom, right? If this was the reason for him inquiring about Jesus, we learn that an earthly throne is not what Christ came to take. He was not a threat to Herod's earthly throne. He had no interest in usurping his earthly rule. No, he was a threat to a more important kingdom of Herod's. He was a threat to Herod's personal kingdom. Herod served the kingdom of self and he served it well. And as we've said already, Jesus has come and he has called for us to forsake that kingdom and to serve his. He calls for his followers to renounce the pursuit of, of doing as you please, when you please, where you please. That's how Herod lived his life. And that was what was being challenged by John, which is why he had him arrested. And many believed that he was pursuing Jesus for this reason. There is an issue with this view though. You see, kings in Jesus' day could do almost anything they desired. If he truly wanted to see Jesus and Jesus resisted, Jesus would have had to have gone into hiding like his father and mother did with them when he was a child and Herod the Great wanted him dead. This Herod did not do that. We'll learn in the coming weeks that Jesus continues to minister right there in Galilee. Herod obviously did not view Jesus's, uh, Jesus's ministry as a personal threat to his character and rule like John. If Herod wanted to see Jesus, I believe he could have. Now, could, it, could God have, have supernaturally kept that from happening? Of course, but we don't have any details that that happened here, right? What would stop a ruler like Herod from sitting down with Jesus if he really wanted to. You see, I think that while Herod was curious about Jesus, we're told he sought to see him. That word sought can mean he tried and failed, but it can also mean that he put in a great deal of effort to just gather facts about who Jesus is. I believe that's what Herod's doing here. He was curious so he gathered more information about Jesus, but he was fine with letting that remain a mystery. Seems to be fine with being perplexed 
over answering that question. He did not press too hard as far as we can see for answers. Listen, you don't get any points, praise, or rewards for simply inquiring about Jesus. Especially if you leave that question unanswered. Folks, have you answered this question? Have you come to the correct biblical conclusion of who Jesus is? That he is the Son of God. The King of God's kingdom. Who left his heavenly kingdom. Left the riches of glory and came to earth to become a man. To live, die, and rise again. So that we who trust in him alone for salvation can be forgiven of sin. And restored to a right relationship with God. Have you come to that understanding of Jesus? And if so, have you responded to his person and work by repenting of your sin and placing your faith alone in Christ alone? Are you trusting in Christ for your salvation today? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you bowed the knee to him? If not, I pray today be the day you do just that. Let's pray together.